Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Aaron Frost. Hey, guys, this is Aaron Frost, the vanilla JS guy. <laughs> I actually kind of liked what you guys did on uh, an Angular on the last recording where you had everyone introduce themselves. So, Yeah, I'm Aaron Frost. I'm the CEO of Hero Devs, um, and uh, I'm on the uh, JavaScript Jabber and, and Adventures in Angular podcast. Nice. Joe Eames? Hey, everybody. Joe Eames, the CEO of Thinkster.io, and uh, I'm going to rebrand myself as the uh, Twist.js JavaScript guy. Not <laughs> not vanilla, but not chocolate either. I'm a Twist. Does that mean you use jQuery? <laughs> uh, I can neither confirm nor d- deny that rumor. I used jQuery this last week, and I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. It's a cool tool. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. I'm coming at you live from my uh, home office. Also known as Soldier JS because someone misread Solder JS and thought it was Soldier. I'm just like this diehard JavaScript fanboy that won't let it go, no matter how hard the TypeScript and Dart and all the other Elm types are pushing. I'm I'm holding steadfast, and I'm uh, building a home server, which is uh, coming out of the Root Company. Cool. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm the CEO over here. And uh, yeah, I make all of the trains run on time. Well, actually, Michelle makes all the trains run on time. But uh, yeah, I own and run the, ne- the podcast network that we're on. So that's that's me. I need to come up with a better introduction. We also have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. So the, what do I always tell people? You speak about a figure skater, graduated from boot camp four years ago, speaking at a lot of conferences, love JavaScript. Front end and back end. Also love SRE work. So I'm doing an NPM right now. What flavor of JavaScript practitioner are you? You know what? I'm on the vanilla JavaScript train. You're on the vanilla JavaScript oh. train? I Ooh. am. I do really like vanilla JavaScript. I like... I like... Wait, so if you were a flavor of JavaScript, would you be like Chris? Would you be vanilla? Or would you be more like, you know, French vanilla? Um, I'm with vanilla... Just- so vanilla, vanilla with like a little low dash, maybe. Joe, <laughs> so I'm the vanilla JS guy. You're that's right. I sorry. I meant I meant Aaron. Aaron, the vanilla JS guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I also. We're gonna have people that are listening to just this episode, and then they're gonna be confused <laughs> when they see Chris's next email come out. Yeah. I'm also right. obsessed with working out, so I run six miles a day, six and a half to be exact. I lift a lot of weight. I love lifting. I eat. I have two cats. I, Wow. Hey, I this is for real. I ran two miles a day. Yes. Um I got that Benjamin button. I haven't ran two miles since I was twenty and now I'm forty. I'm going down That's in awesome. age. So. Next thing you know you're gonna be horse gump. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, I went three miles today, so just What? Yeah. See? Good job, Chuck. That's yeah, my Strava. Three miles. There I went three go. miles yesterday too. Anyway, uh, we have a special guest this week and that's Gareth McComsky. Yep. Hi, everybody. I'm all the way from Cape Town, South Africa. I'm the serverless guy on the on the show tonight. And um, from the end of April, I'll also be a customer success engineer with uh, Serverless Inc. So, yay. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. 
They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Dude, now, South first, Africa. How long does the, the internet take to travel back and forth from there to Utah? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, not quite as bad as you think. <laughs> I, I'm just curious. So is, is Java, JavaScript on serverless vanilla or is that more chocolate, strawberry? Um, it's a little bit of a bit of node. Uh, Vanilla bean. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Beans sounds like Java beans, and I don't know if we want to. <laughs> I don't know if we want to go there. It's the fudge on top of the node. <laughs> All right. Well. Um. Anyway, uh, we brought you on to talk about Jamstack and serverless, which I think Jamstack. is a really interesting, really interesting follow-on to the episode we did with Phil and Divya in January. So. Is Jamstack um, one of those things that you call out? Is it is it that exciting? I actually took a bit of it. Lately. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> That's so funny. It's like it's like the horn. It's like an air horn. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't need a soundboard. We just have frosty. <laughs> we just have frosty. Jamstack. Oh, yeah. Hold on. I'm gonna make it better. Jamstack. <laughs> Okay, bro. Oh man, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's how you introduce Jamstack. Yeah. yeah, sorry. No, it's all good. So, so yeah, so Jamstack and serverless. How how does that work, Gareth? So, so Jamstack uh, is is yeah, one of the basic um, intro to Jamstack. Like this is for third graders right here. Well, the funny thing about Jamstack is it's like we started. I started my internet career looking at HTML, CSS. And even back then, it wasn't much JavaScript. And it's funny how uh, things come around and suddenly we're back to using just uh, JavaScript and uh, CSS and HTML to produce static pages. And that's basically what Jamstack is trying to get back to, these ideas of static pages where you don't have all this fancy dynamic stuff that you need to maintain servers for you know, and build you know, complex pages on. And... The cool thing with Jamstack is that these days with all the front-end tools we've got, you know, the Reacts and the Angulars and, and so on, building pages is, is kind of becoming um, a bit more standardized. But the tricky part now for a lot of devs who are really getting geared up and good at building these front-end uh, portions of their app is, is building the back-end stuff. Um, and that's where a lot of serverless stuff comes in because um, traditionally we used to having our backends being these you know, uh, machines that we have to have running that receive requests that go ahead and you know build our pages for us, sort of MVC style, uh, where you have to worry about you know if you have a single VM and this goes down, now I have to worry about you know how do I make sure that my visitors you know don't see a you know 500 error, so now I've got to get a second VM up and a load balance in front of that, but now my database is getting overloaded, so I've got to find ways to scale this and split all that out, and this is traditionally like being the, the sort of back end role you know, back in dev role uh, that, that gets handled. You're trying to close the, the gap, it sounds like, before the front-end peeps? 
to well, be able to do some of that full stack stuff a little bit easier. Is that what I'm saying? Well, that's, that's where it's coming to. But the cool thing is, is that we don't even have to try to do that because over time, um, if you think about the history of all this development is we've always been moving away from actually handling a machine. As time goes on, we're abstracting ourselves more and further and further away from an actual machine that runs code. You know, in the old days, you'd have a, have, a, have a company with their own little room with an air conditioner in and some racks plugged into the internet, and they desperately try and serve their content. All the way to today, we have these massive cloud vendors that give you access to virtual machines that you can spin up at a whim. Uh, the next logical step is to take even that away so that you don't even have to worry about, you know, the operating system or your applications that you need to run. You just need to say, here's my code. Just make sure it runs whenever a request comes in on this endpoint. Or if an entry goes into my database, make sure this code runs. Or any number of other events that can, that can possibly happen. And that's basically where serverless is coming to, where we're taking away having to handle every request like some unique, uh, unique snowflake. Uh, we just end up storing the code somewhere, an event triggers it, and it, it's available. And on the front-end side, how this usually ends up working, obviously, is things like making RESTful AJAX requests or even GraphQL requests to the code that's in the back that has been set up without even worrying about a server. So that sounds like a little bit abstract because now we're saying, okay, that we can make these requests to an API in the back, but that sounds like it still needs some kind of machine back there to receive all the stuff. So to define, the, the, the definition of serverless is one of those things that has kind of been difficult to pin down. Sort of the whole idea of, of serverless architecture is very uh, new, and many people have tried to find a, a great definition to pin it down. But it's starting to come to sort of settle down into a very, very distinct pattern. And what that ends up being is serverless isn't just like a Lambda function or a Cloudflare worker or any of these functions as a service, uh, things that you can do. Serverless is more a, a, a way to build an application on managed services so that instead of spinning up a virtual machine, uh, to run a database on, for example, or even run a uh, database instance in, in somewhere like Amazon, you use a service like DynamoDB, which has no concept of a sort of CPU or RAM. You just give it data and it keeps it. You query the data and it gives it back. And you work with very distinct patterns of access. You know, I get charged for 100 reads of my data I did today and my 50 writes. You're not being billed for a you know, tw uh, 24 hours of a machine running even when nothing's actually happening. So when you boil these managed services, services down, it got, it got to the point where you had all of these things. You had things like S3, for example, where you could store your files and you're not paying for, again, a server, uh, suddenly they're doing nothing but holding data. The S3 service is uh, available always for you to get and put files and you only get billed when you actually get and put, similar to the way DynamoDB works, for example and any of the, a lot of these other services, but the one missing link was compute. Um, so most people would spin up an EC2 instance so that they had a CPU that could actually run code. And that was when in 2015, if I remember correct, it might be 2016, when Amazon announced Lambda, which was their attempt to essentially give you compute as a service instead of have you having to worry about running VMs, uh, load balancing VMs, all that stuff that, that, that comes with trying to execute code. And it works on the exact same model. You've got code sitting on Amazon that costs you nothing unless somebody unless it's actually being executed. 
And then you tie that in with things like I was mentioning S3 and DynamoDB, which can trigger these, this code, or services like API Gateway, where you can create uh, uh, RESTful endpoints that cost you nothing unless a request is actually being processed through it. So again, that sort of fits the serverless model, which after looking at all of this, the definition of serverless ends up being a combination of these managed services that essentially cost you nothing until they're in use. So you're being built for actual queries, actual requests, actual computation being executed, not for idle time uh, when nothing's happening in the background. And that's sort of the sort of truest definition of what serverless means, which works really great from a front-end point of view because we now have tools being built on top of this model to help make uh, deploying and creating this kind of service really interesting and unique. I was going to add... Um... So I hadn't really played around this with this until recently, and I played around a little bit in the fall with uh, MongoDB Stitch, and I actually was pretty impressed by it from somebody who would, like, I don't know, it felt really weird at first to not be creating a backend for my front end. And I don't know, it was interesting how you said about kind of like the architecture of it, because that was the only part that was a little bit uncomfortable for me, was like when I build out backends, I'm pretty, you know, I usually use Express or like I've used Koa before, and there's usually like these established patterns that you follow. And that was the only part that was kind of, like it felt a little dirty to me. Um, And so like I had to get over that. So do you have any thoughts in that regard? Yeah, you've actually sort of hit the nail on the head with probably one of the, because just taking a step back a little bit, the the idea of serverless, like I mentioned, is this architecture that's sort of starting to gain some ground. Um, and, and people are starting to pick up on its usefulness. But if you look at the evolution of web development over time, like I mentioned before, you know, everything we've done from the beginning up until where we are now is an ev- a slight evolution on how we build apps. So even if you look at the recent sort of um, growth around containers and container management, it's a great evolution of working on just VMs, but it's essentially an, a, just a way to take what we already have on VMs and lift and shift it onto something called containers, which is an improvement, but it doesn't change fundamentally how we build apps. It just changes how we provision and deploy them. But serverless is a completely different way of thinking about building apps. And like you mentioned, it feels a little uncomfortable. I mean, even myself, I, 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 this might seem a little dirty on the JavaScript show, even as a, as a, as a PHP developer, it's... Uh, building backends with frameworks like the Symphonies and Laravels, you know, to go building these serverless backends with essentially no framework was a very difficult thing to get used to. But ultimately, I mean, every day I see people as well because, you know, being involved with the serverless community, you know, often I do see people trying to do things like, uh, you know, because they want to continue using Node, they come to they come to serverless thinking oh, I can I can pretty much use Express to you know just pick my stuff up and drop it into a Lambda. Technically that works, but when you start looking at how you know combining things like API Gateway for example that lets you create endpoints, you realize Express kind of doesn't add much value because really if you think about Express, its biggest value is that it does routing for you. But if you're using API Gateway to give you endpoints, that's already routing requests for you. And that's pointing at the Lambda functions you need. And if you're using a tool, and I'm going to, I'm going to pimp it, the serverless framework, it helps you do that deployment of these, these sort of serverless components uh, a lot quicker, a lot easier. So managing your, uh, your application in that way makes serverless um, 
almost a no-brainer in my opinion, which is which is why I'm in the space. So I, I, I like the kind of technical overview that we got, and you know, you talking about how serverless works. But for me, I like the, I guess the the storytelling of you know your code goes in here, right? Mm-hmm. And then serverless does what it does, and then you get this result. And so I'm curious, do you have any examples that you can walk us through that where sure. people are using serverless with Jamstack? Let's say, for example, that somebody, I don't know, is building a website that hosts a whole bunch of podcasts. And you know, what kinds of things would they need <laughs> for? Just, just hypothetically mm-hmm. speaking. I don't, know, I don't know anybody who has a site with podcasts, but I'll give it a shot. Not, not a serious one anyway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, I can, I can speak to that. I mean, I built a few uh, apps already uh, sort of using Jamstack and serverless as, as the idea. Um, and in fact, uh, in, the, in the pre-show, you guys were mentioning jQuery. Funnily enough, uh, one of the projects I've worked on, uh, the front end is built on jQuery in this oh. day and age. It, it, still, it still exists. But it does connect to a, a, a serverless backend, which, which actually... jQuery! <laughs> nice. But the cool thing is, I mean, serverless, uh, all it does is provide you uh, endpoints uh, if you have a front end. And it doesn't really care what the front end's built in. So... That first of all I mean, gives you the flexibility. If you're a React guy and you and you like to build your front end re- with React, or if you prefer Angular, you can pick your poison. If you like jQuery, then that's available too. So to be clear, you're calling jQuery poison. <laughs> that's absolutely what I said. Those were the words that came out. Of okay, my cool. I, did, I didn't misinterpret it. Perfect. Good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the the it, it, the first step is often to um, well. There is no real first step. I mean, if you're if you're a front end person, you're going to probably uh, prototype uh, building on a front end. Uh, maybe you're going to end up mocking some APIs. But the advantage that Serverless gives you is that it's actually so easy to spin up API endpoints, even if they're not fully functional yet, that you often end up uh, mocking that way. Can I give an example of uh, um, an app I've actually built? Yes, absolutely. Can I mention the URL? Yes, 100%. And the thing is, is then people can go and actually see it in action, right? And that's the okay. thing that I'm looking for is visualizing in my head, okay, where can I go with this, right? Instead mm-hmm. of just, okay, there's this, this uh, function in the cloud somewhere that does a thing, and I've got my website over here, and I have no idea what the two do together. Okay. So one of the projects that I was involved in, they, it's a company called Expert Explore uh, at expertexplore.com. The company's still busy transitioning most of the site over to a Jamstack and serverless uh, architecture. Um, when I left, they were well on the way uh, of sort of uh, swapping out the back end from a WordPress uh, platform, believe it or not. And I'm talking a multi-million dollar a travel company running off of WordPress. So it's nice to see that they're still continuing with the transition. But last time I checked, uh, they, they were still working on things. So the place to take a look, I mean, the site has um, sort of about us pages. Um, and they're a great example because they also use a combination of a headless uh, what's it called? Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Because one of the problems with that, that, that the company was facing was that they, the reason they were using WordPress is that they had a fair number of these about us pages, which was CMS content. They genuinely needed editors to edit content. But the, uh, to run the entire platform off of, of, of WordPress, uh, checking out these expensive tours was potentially a problem. So a solution that was built was a front-end built-in view that essentially generated these uh, static pages uh, using a build process in Bitbucket. 
So Bitbucket has a sort of pipelines feature built in. And one of the cool things that we were able to do, you know, on the headless CMS, we, we were able to build a Lambda function running on AWS, obviously, uh, that had an API endpoint connected to it. And when a uh, editor edited content in the headless CMS, it would trigger the Lambda function, which would then call the Bitbucket API to rebuild the page. And when it rebuilt the page, it pulled the new content that the editor had just saved in the CMS. And in Bitbucket, once it rebuilt the page, it was then able to push that new HTML uh, Jamstack file directly onto, into an S3 bucket, which is what you see on the site when you go to one of these About Us pages um, about the company. So that was, a, that was a sort of serverless way of allowing editors to have a nice friendly editing environment, which wasn't uh, necessarily WordPress, but build it in a way that created a static page so that now there's a super fast, highly cached version of this, uh, this, this content page that, we can, that you could optimize as much as you like uh, you know, as a developer because the content gets built every single time it's, it's edited. And it doesn't affect the ability for an editor to change the content as they see fit. And it was getting to the point where they were using the CMS to actually edit all the product pages. That was some of the stuff they were working on. I'm not sure if they've gotten to that point yet because I did leave the company uh, you know, after we, we started the project. But there are portions of the site that are serverless. If you look at, for example, uh, the, the actual tour pages themselves, they have a pricing section and that is a little serverless component built in view, for example. Uh, the review section that they have is essentially got a serverless backend to it. Uh, so all of these pieces were built um, on sort of Jamstack and serverless. I, I really yes. love that. And I'm working on a system right now that it, it essentially manages the podcasts. And I'm building the backend in Rails, but I really like the idea of having it when somebody edits, for example, yeah, sponsor information or something like that. I'd like that to show up on the static site because the marketing stuff is all in a Jamstack page. Mm-hmm. And I've thought about making that hit a, an API on my app but I'd really like it to be static and not have to fiddle with, okay, I've got view on the front end here that talks to the back end, that pulls the information, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so I love the idea of having it, you know, go and hit GitLab or Bitbucket and say, okay, you've got a new page here, go, and then have it build and deploy and do all the other stuff that it's supposed to do. Well, that's the nice thing. All of these, uh, you know, the GitLabs and the Bitbuckets, they have these these systems to run any CICD kind of process you want and the webhooks uh, there as well to help trigger. You know, if you have a CMS that somebody could edit something in, you know, you just need to find a way to hook into that into that webhook that can then talk to GitLab or Bitbucket and there you go. You can rebuild the page, deploy it to wherever you store your static, uh, static site. Yeah, I also like it. And I, there's a question here at the end of this, but I like that then I can store my API credentials in my Lambda or you know Azure function or whatever I'm using, right? And I don't have to expose it on my website, you know. So when when somebody edits the stuff inside of the admin panel, if they're watching the traffic go by, they see it go over the the wire to the Lambda and not you know not get my API credentials to the other system. But how do I protect that endpoint that they're then hitting? Well, there's uh, that's one of the things I remember you guys were chatting about uh, in the previous show. So obviously, if you've got this beautiful static site and you've got all this JavaScript, it's very difficult to keep secret secret when it's in plain text. Uh, so one of the ways that uh, I found to try and, and build these apps to protect your, your, your secrets is a lot of the time, a lot of the data you have that's exposed by your endpoints is public information anyway. 
So if you look at, um, I'm trying to think, if you look at sort of the reviews uh, section on that Expert Explore site, even if somebody is able to ping the API endpoint for that, it doesn't really matter. You know, the company's not trying to hide the reviews. It's public information. So there, authentication doesn't matter. You don't need to have secrets to limit access to those endpoints because anybody can see that data anytime. The things you worry about is things like customer information. Um, so when you have a customer that wants to log in, how do you protect their information with secrets? So the way to, the way to continue to build that is to rather focus on their credentials and not try to produce your own to access sort of secret information. So what I, mean, what I mean by that is you have an authentication process for this user, a customer, for example, that wants to log in, and they then get a JWT or some kind of token uh, that's similar to that that authenticates them. And their token now has permissions to access a, an API that normally is not accessible by public. So the normal, uh, you know, if you do have any public credentials used, these public credentials don't have access to this customer information but this customer that's now authenticated received a token, and now when he's in the customer section viewing his information, the API requests going to your serverless backend is using his token to authenticate, and the serverless backend now knows that he has permission to see his data. So in that way, you're keeping secret secret because they're only being used when somebody's already proven then they, they are who they are by authenticating. Right, um, so the JWT gets sent over to the Lambda function, and the Lambda function asks... Mm-hmm. whatever authentication system you have, is this valid? And the yes. system says, yes, it is. Any of this user data is fair game. Anything else is off limits. Yep. And, and uh, then it just does the rest of the work if, if it authenticates. Is that what you're saying, essentially? Yeah, pretty much. So maybe to take it one step back, because we've been talking about, you know, you've got, a, you've got API Gateway doing endpoints and Lambda doing this and S3 here and DynamoDB there and all these pieces that sound sort of confusing to try and put together. One of the really uh, cool things I mentioned, there's tools in the space to help help build these things now. Uh, because when these things sort of, when Lambda first came out, if you wanted to really get into this, you had to go into the AWS console or use the AWS CLI and tell it, now I've got this code in this file, please upload it as a zip file, as a Lambda function manually. And then you'd have to go manually configure the API gateway endpoint that points at that and so on and so on, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But, for example, there's, the, there's a tool called the Serverless Framework, which I mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show, which is purely designed to help orchestrate all of these pieces together. So when I say framework, everyone, people might be picturing a very opinionated piece of code that tells you, here's where you put your source code, this is where your model classes live, and this is where your entities go, and you know, this is where all your libraries live. But the Serverless Framework is actually completely unopinionated when it comes to that kind of thing. All it's there for is to help you configure the bits and pieces of an application, that you, a serverless application that you want to build, specifically a, a serverless microservice that you want to build. So a very rough uh, example of this is, you know, I'm just thinking of sort of a generic service that you might want if you're building something. Maybe you need a product service to help sort of manage what products you have available on your app. Maybe let's make it even, even, even more uh, appropriate. Let's, let's say that you want to have a, have a service that manages what, what, what podcasts you've got available. So you're building a podcast site, you want an API that you can pull uh, to get a list of existing podcasts from, but you need a service to help you, you know, manage that. So the serverless framework will let you do things like define a serverless, uh, a YAML file that configures a name for your service that says, I want a function called this, and the code exists here on my file system. 
and I want it to be triggered by an HTTP event that is a GET request, and this is the path to it. With that, you then go write a little .js file uh, that contains the actual uh, Lambda code. And once you've written that and you've defined your serverless YAML file, uh, use the CLI tool, uh, essentially to type SLS deploy, and it'll deploy and, 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 and uh, create all of that infrastructure for you automatically. It will upload the Lambda uh, function for you and add it into your AWS account. It'll create a new API gateway instance for you with the correct endpoint and the right path and method, and then link it to the Lambda function. So at that point, within minutes, you've now gotten an endpoint that you can make a GET request to that'll call your Lambda function that will return whatever code you wrote into it to return. Essentially, to summarize what you're saying is that uh, the serverless framework is set up to abstract over the top of the infrastructure that you would have to set up for serverless function in the same way that, say, Express abstracts over the top of the HTTP libraries in Node and makes it easier for you to just build stuff. It doesn't encapsulate really any opinions. It's just kind of a best practice thing that paves over the details that you don't need to know about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it takes the sort of serverless idea even further because the the serverless framework is also a, a multi-vendor. So you could, there is some support for Google Cloud Functions, for example, and Azure. The sort of configuration file needs to be slightly different between the vendors, but they're very similar in ways like uh, identifying or, or specifying that I have a, this uh, code living in this file that is a Lambda fun- that is a function that I'll need to run and it's triggered by an HTTP event. But one of the really cool things that you can even take a step further is because, you know, the, 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 the easy, this uh, almost naive way to think about these serverless microservices is that all it does is provide you nice HTTP endpoints. When the cool thing is, you can actually do uh, quite a lot more. AWS, for example, has services like SNS, SQS, which is messaging, uh, sort of messaging systems, PubSub, and message queues. Um, you can use even Kinesis, which is a streaming uh, system to stream uh, data in. Great for things like if you're doing clickstream tracking on your on the, on the front end of your site. And things like I've mentioned DynamoDB, which is a way to store data. But even that, when you store data uh, or change data in any way, you can trigger a Lambda function from that. So you can build pretty sophisticated event-driven microservices that you might have some HTTP endpoints, but then you have multiple microservices communicating between each other through tools like SNS and, and message queues, uh, you know, PubSub and message queues, different Lambda functions triggering off of database changes. You can have Lambda functions triggering off of an S3 bucket. So if your user uploads a file, and this is one of the sort of more common uses uh, now as well, is have an S3 bucket that somebody can upload an image into, and a Lambda function is triggered off of that upload, and then it creates a thumbnail of that image and stores that in a, in a second S3 bucket automatically. So you instantly have thumbnails available for all the images you ever upload. So these kind of interactions is where, where things really become really interesting when you're building serverless backends. So, you know, if, you, if you're taking from a front-end developer point of view that just needs some API endpoints, you can totally do that. But if you, if you want to, you know, expand that further into a complex app that can deal with a lot of volume and traffic, all these other tools are available as well, which is pretty neat. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, 
you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I've kind of been hogging the mic. Anyone else have questions? So, so I think I have a question kind of related to what Amy asked earlier. When you create a, your first serverless function, a lot of, a lot of people are like recreate an, ex, an entire express server or KOA server in their serverless function, right? So it feels like a lot to spin up in my function. Like I just wanted to handle a little function, right? Like, and yeah, maybe I wanted some middleware and I wanted to handle a JOT token and whatevs, but um, it's, it seems like these, what sounds like a function is pretty complex just to come out of the gate and use like, is Jamstack helping solve that for me? Cause it does seem like a lot to kind of bring in on like, and I, and then to like, no, I know that I'm turning express on every single time a user requests that function. Like, it's not like I boot up express and then it's on, you're booting it up every single time. You know what I'm saying? So is there any way to like make that less heavy or, or what, what are the thoughts around that? Cause that's, that's sometimes I think where I get confused around this stuff. Well, the, you, you don't really need to go at the sort of full express route with your functions. The way to think about the uh, Lambda functions is that they can be triggered by any number of events, um, one of them being an HTTP event um, over something like API Gateway. And for people who are not familiar, API Gateway is a service from AWS that lets you create a, a place to send HTTP requests, just like any old web server, as if you spin up an EC2 instance and we're running Express on it. Um, so you can think of API Gateway as the replacement for your Express routing mechanism. And it can do a lot more than just routing. It can do throttling. It can handle all, you know, documentation for your API, all sorts of features, which I'm not necessarily going to go into detail with. But the cool thing about this is that if you, if you front your Lambda function with something like API Gateway, all your Lambda function sees is an event object. So it's literally a function that receives a parameter called event, or you can call it whatever you like, but the object is going to be an event object that is different depending on you know, what the event is. So HTTP events have a specific structure that you can get the data from. So if it's a GET request, you might have the URL you might want. You might want any uh, query parameters that have been appended to that, that GET request. Uh, you might want the user's IP address. Um, if it's a POST request, you probably want to grab some of the data out of the body, which is completely available to you. And your pathing, just like in any framework, can include uh, parameters as part of the path. So your path parameter could be included as well if you want to filter by an ID or you know, some other uh, uh, identifier for an entity of some kind. But the cool thing is that you're not writing Express every single time. I can grab my event object and just do, you know, in Node, I can just do a basic uh, JSON parse on event.body and there we go. I've got my JSON body now parsed out into a, a, a JavaScript object ready for me to validate and do whatever I want to do with, which is pretty neat. The API gateway takes over the Express server and then just kind of forwards the request on. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, so pretty like, much. So like all the middleware can, ex can exist on the API gateway and then just kind of forward the request on if it meets all the middleware requirements? That's exactly. And, and uh, you know, Chuck was mentioning uh, authentication and JWTs as well. Um, and API gateway has a cool way that you can... You can uh, okay, so you can do authentication through API Gateway because it allows you to either connect to AWS's Cognito service, which is, again, a managed service to have users. 
So you don't have to build a whole user management system, which is pretty nice. Beautiful. Be yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Or if you yeah. really want to, you can build your own authentication system. And API Gateway lets you say, when I get a request, an HTTP request for this function in, validate it through this one. So you point at a different Lambda. And what happens is API Gateway will receive a request. It'll, it'll see that it has a function that needs to do validation first. So it'll pass the JWT to this validation function, which does what it needs to do, accept or deny the request. If accepted, it then continues on to the actual Lambda function that then does whatever the business logic is. So either way, you can customize it to the nth degree or use the managed service that already exists. Yeah, and as Still, far as Express goes, you don't need it because what it does is it pulls all that information out of the request and then passes it to a function that you define. Mm -hmm. And then gotcha. it just runs the function. And that's it. Gotcha. Yeah. Are there ways that people are using TypeScript to write their functions a little bit easier without having to transpile? Or like, how is TypeScript really fitting into like this Jamstack serverless world? Well, TypeScript is used. So the serverless framework, uh, well, again, taking a step back from that, AWS Lambda is the primary focus for uh, something like the serverless framework. And while you know Google has their sort of functions and and Azure does as well, the biggest uh, sort of uh, drive has been through AWS because that's where most people are doing this kind of thing. So you know, being a small small team at Serverless, you know, we have to focus on uh, one thing at a time. We can't build everything all at once. So um, Jesus, and I've forgotten the question. <laughs> uh, TypeScript. I was asking about hey, how does TypeScript fit into this? Sorry. <laughs> no problem. So AWS has uh, support for multiple runtimes, and obviously one of them being Node, but uh, Serverless has to build templates to wrap around these runtimes, and one of those templates happens to be TypeScript. So you can actually uh, create a, uh, a Serverless service through the Serverless framework uh, using the TypeScript uh, template, and when you do a deploy, um, it essentially, it, it'll, it'll do the whole compilation process for you down to uh, the JavaScript needed to run it as a Lambda, but you're coding in TypeScript, so you don't care. You just, you know, SLS deploy on your command line and up goes your code in, you know, native JavaScript. Have you done any testing to see if there's performance problems with that or it works okay or? Well, it's, I, I haven't personally done that, but I mean, it's TypeScript's compiler. It's, it's whatever they compile down to. So if there's performance problems, that's something that the TypeScript guys have to fix in their compilation yeah. process. So, uh, Lambda also supports Ruby. This is me smiling. Yeah, uh, I think we. I think Serverless Framework has <laughs> Serverless Framework has a Ruby template as well. So you can build uh, services with Ruby, and that's a that's a recently that's that's quite a recent uh, addition. It is. Ruby. And <laughs> nice. if you are doing Ruby, uh, we did an episode on Ruby on Jets, which is a serverless framework for Ruby. So oh, nice. Yeah, there's just so much to get into. Uh, I mean, I want to I want to stop playing around with trying to build because uh, uh, Lambda supports Java and .NET, and I'm actually keen just to play around with that a little bit just to try it out. I think it also supports Python and yep. Go. Python and Go. That's, that's, they yep, they do. So Go is supported as well. Um, but they also recently, uh, you know, AWS released their um, bring your own runtime type of uh, system along with layers. So there's, there's been all sorts of uh, shakeups in sort of serverless space and uh, the serverless framework is, is busy changing to try and support these things. But it's, again, that's a little difficult being a sort of small startup team. You can't get, it, get to everything at once, but it's really fun uh, that all this stuff is changing. So you could even in the future start building these serverless services with a PHP runtime, which is not officially supported, but 
bring your own runtime. So who knows? AJ, so, were you trying to break in? Yeah, ever the contrarian and being mm-hmm. someone who is into, you know, IoT, hardware type stuff. Um, and, and also local development is really important to me. Like I, mm-hmm. I like to be able to kind of have context and understand how things are working. So to me, serverless just sounds like a whole bunch of complexity. Like I'm thinking I put a little file on my desktop here. I write some JavaScript in it. I hit node, you know, I can start interacting with it. I can see how things are working. I can debug it really easy. Um, and it's going to deploy anywhere. Like I can use Docker if I want to use various different operating systems. If I just want to go de facto Ubuntu, like there's no crazy weird stuff I have to learn about load balancers or, or any of that. Like I, the only crazy weird thing I have to learn is how to copy and paste a system D file, right? So like for me, I just, I, I, to, it just sounds really complex and really hard to, to, to wrap head around. Now, if you're a front-end developer... I could see, you know, you really just, if you don't want to like level up to the point where you understand, uh, you know, basics of the command line and and basics of how to run a server, like you really just want to stick more on the CSS design side or something like that, whatever reason, you just don't want to touch the computer itself. Like I get that. And I I see that serverless as being really valuable there. But but, uh, I I don't know about just like the general case, something I'd advocate for, for everyone. So I, I, w- I want to hear the rebuttals on the, on that comment from all of you because I think most of you are yeah. not, not in my uh, not in my headspace at all on that. I think that uh, uh, the way that you're talking about it, I think is I think it's better than the way we used to do it ten years ago, and I think it's pretty modern. I think though that what Gareth is saying is uh, you're going to pay for that whether you have users or not, though. And with like a serverless Jamstack architecture. If no one hits your stuff, you're not paying for anything. And so it lends itself better to a lot of uses for a lot of cases. But I've been in scenarios where these serverless things fall asleep and you have to wake them up. And you like for Slack bots and stuff like that, they're basically worthless. And so you do kind of need more what AJ is talking about. So I can see scenarios where like well, both are useful. So Amazon's now trying to compete directly with DigitalOcean. Amazon has traditionally been extremely complex and just like their interface is so confusing. They've started LightSail, right? Mm-hmm. LightSail is $3.50 a month for the same thing that five years ago was $5 a month on DigitalOcean, right? And there's, I mean, I mean, like, yeah, if I don't ever plan to get any traffic on my website, serverless is like, totally inexpensive. If I plan to get a ton of traffic on my website, serverless is going to be a hundred times more expensive than a physical server. But then like, I also would have to have like IT staff potentially to manage that, you know, the physical server stays up or whatever. And then cloud services are in the middle. They're like 10 times more expensive than physical servers, but they're 10 times less expensive than typical serverless type stuff like Amazon Lambda for loads that are moderate loads. Right. So I wouldn't even say that it's 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 less expensive only in a particular use case for particular needs. It's not universally less expensive. I'm going to throw in here. So first of all, serverless framework makes a lot of the AWS headache go away. Mm-hmm. And I've played with it. I really like it. And it makes things really, really simple. Um, okay. You do have well, to I... figure out a little bit with your AWS credentials. But that's actually the trickiest part, yeah. The other thing is, is I've, I've learned this about myself over the last week. I used to think like two weeks ago, 
I'm such a cool guy. I can deploy my own apps to my own servers. Rawr. And I had a company come to me and say, hey, we want to sponsor the shows. And I said, I'm going to go try out their thing. And it's called Cloud 66. And so I went into Cloud 66 and I hooked up my Git repository to it. And I said, deploy me one of these. And an hour later, I had one of those. And it set up the whole server, did all the deployment. And I was like, gee, this is really nice. And so, you know, serverless in a lot of ways gives you that as well, where you don't have to go and figure out Docker and system D and all of the other pieces that you have to put into place to make it run. But and then so, you've got to figure out some, I, and I, I'm, when I've been speaking service, serverless, I've been kind of using it more generically, not specifically the company serverless. So I apologize for that first off. Yeah. But you still have to learn something. Like, it's not like you can just point it to a repository and it's going to spin it up and work. Like you have to go read the documentation. You have to write a config file. You have to like figure out how it works in this environment and like what isn't compatible with the way that you did it before. And that's with everything. Like every single thing you'll ever do, you have to go read the documentation and write a config file for that thing. But in the same token, how did you, how did you ever figure out how to drop your one little file onto a server and get that to run? You had to go spend the time to learn how to set up a machine that can then serve content to an endpoint somehow to somebody or execute the way you wanted to. So, well, yeah, and, and I and I don't disagree with that at all. I just think that typically people in the space tend to talk as if like it's really complex and really hard to set up, and so, and it can be if you're if you're trying to get an enterprise hello world. You know, if you want a load balanced hello world that's got distributed databases and you know all that. But in reality, you're not going to really get a whole lot of traffic on your site. I mean, and if you're starting to get value out of people visiting your site, then, you, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's a different game at, at that point. But you don't have to, it's not like, okay, I'm going to have my own personal blog. Let me figure out load balancers. Well, just to take it one step back, you're also talking about the cost of things. So you mentioned that you can get a light cell uh, set up for now $3.50 a month. Um, to put something into perspective, I've got a customer that I built. I replaced a, a self-hosted solution that they had sitting on a, on a shared host somewhere uh, that was uh, receiving email and processing that through their own sort of legacy SOAP API. Ended up replacing, and that was costing them, I'm, I'm going to try and convert into dollars now because this was in, in, in local currency here. Uh, that was costing them probably about $50 a month just due to the volume they had, you know, a few hundred thousand emails a day that they had to process in this way. Um, ended up replacing that with a completely serverless solution for them, and that's costing them 50 US cents a month. Okay, uh, so that, that's something that I'd like to hear. You're like, you've but, got a very specific use case that does a very uh, discrete task over and over again, and you're getting a lot of value out of that. Like, I, I like to hear that. I like to hear a use case that, like, I can connect with and make sense to me and say, yeah, I actually would want to save that money to do that. Well, I mean, the other side of things, if, if the example I mentioned before with the company Expert Explore, their, their servers were obviously running on EC2 instances at the time. And just doing the transition of those few elements that I mentioned with the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the payment, the, the, the products page had this little component, the reviews and the sort of about us section, even that uh, ended up being a saving for the company. And this is a global tour company uh, that gets traffic from the Philippines to the U.S., and even there, we were able to turn the database server down uh, a couple of really big notches that saved a lot of money, turning down the EC2 instances a few notches as well. And the serverless costs coming nowhere near to what that, you know, that saving was at the time. That's simply because um, 
what ends up happening is that lambdas execute a lot faster than people think they do. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about these cold start things. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about heard about that. Well, um, yeah, Aaron was just mentioning that. But cold starts actually, it, it sounds uh, crazy, but it's not actually as big a deal as it sounds. And there's a simple reason for this, because when an, a Lambda instance is executed for the first time, sure, there is that, that sort of, uh, I'd say about 100 milliseconds of latency that gets added on for that first execution. But that Lambda, when it's warm, is sitting around waiting for another request. So what you uh, find happens is that multiple requests start coming in side by side, and multiple Lambda functions will go from cold start and warm up. But they stay warm, and any requests that come in after that now are being executed much, 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 much faster on warm Lambda functions. So instead of a request queuing, uh, or not queuing, uh, waiting for or waiting for a cold Lambda to warm up, you've already got warm ones. So even if your traffic is increasing over time, the warm Lambda functions are executing them faster over time as well, and your cold start just doesn't happen as, as often as you think. Is that like 100 milliseconds for the virtual machine? Because like, if you've got a uh, node application, it can take 30 seconds to boot up. If I, got- I was dealing with much longer uh, cold start times than 100 milliseconds. Like Slack gives you 3,000 milliseconds to respond. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they send an error to the user. And I was, I was getting way over the 3,000. So I had to switch. We tried to build a heartbeat to, to keep the bot alive, to keep the, uh, the cold start from happening. Was that on Lambda? We tried Lambda and we tried Google Cloud Functions, and they both had the same issue, and so we switched it over to um, a Node server. Just so that one call, though. This is where we start getting into sort of the funny little gotchas that you do find with uh, running, writing sort of Lambda functions, doing things like talking to a relational database in RDS, for example. Uh, can there's a there's a tweak you need to make to make sure that it can actually return a response within less than ten seconds. And this is a yeah. funny thing related to the JavaScript uh, virtual machine uh, when it's uh, queuing things in the stack. It starts getting a bit hairy to like talk about, but uh, essentially you've got things queuing in the stack and a database connection being made, and the callback doesn't fire while stuff is sitting in the stack unless you set a specific configuration value. So the problem is, is that Lambda is trying to wait for everything to finish executing in your stack before it sends the callback so that the code you want to run actually runs. But when it comes to a database connection, that connection is sitting idle waiting for more queries because that's what database connections do. They want to try and hold on to uh, sitting around for a while to optimize a connection to database. But this can go up to 10 seconds by, de- by default. So you sometimes find this problem where a Lambda function uh, ex- looks like it's executing for about 10 seconds before it returns a response. Meantime, it's just because a database connection was sitting on the stack uh, holding the callback from happening. So. Am I understanding correctly that you're saying there's a custom configuration that is either limiting the number of threads that are spawned in the background or the no. number of things that can be on the stack in the V8 environment? No, no, I'm talking about the uh, you know just just the generic call stack in JavaScript. You know, with your when you when you when you if you're not uh, going through callback hell, this is before the days of async and await. Uh, you know, you, you have your callbacks and your promises all chucking their code onto the call stack. You get to the callback right at the end of your Lambda function. Now it's going to go through the, the stack to execute all this other code, this asynchronous code that you had waiting. But uh, a connection to database is essentially another callback. So it's causing the Lambda just to sit, uh, you know, sit at the end at the callback stage, waiting for the connection to close. 
So there's a, just, there's a simple configuration that just you, you just pass a single, a single flag in the first line of your Lambda function that says, please don't wait for the call stack to be empty before returning the callback. And then it, then if things uh, goes, goes back to normal. All right, so I just, a little bit more information there. Like when I'm running Node, I don't have this problem. I don't have to set any configuration because Node will, you know, if I have a hundred things in the queue, it'll let a hundred things go through the queue. Yeah. So you said that they're not doing anything custom with the stack, but that you have to set a configuration. I'm all, all that's happening is, is that the callback, when, when, when the Lambda has a callback, that's where the Lambda ends execution. And that's when you stop getting billed. But if there's something in your call stack, it, it obviously that still needs to execute. So it needs to it still needs to wait for that stuff to finish in the in the call stack okay. before it can end the lambda would, function and return would, by default. If there's like a, a blog article with some code examples that you know of that explains this, because it sounds like this is something people run into and probably has to get explained. I would love to see that to, uh, to understand it better. And thanks yeah. for explaining it so far. I'm sorry I didn't I still I need I need to see code to kind of like get it, yeah. I think. And yeah, you know, I've got an podcast can do it. Yeah, I've got an example I can send to you. But to be honest, this isn't awesome. actually that, that big a problem. Uh, like I said, it's a one-line uh, option that you just set in the top of your uh, uh, config file. And to be perfectly honest, uh, a lot of people end up not uh, using relational databases when building a serverless app because technically speaking, a MySQL database isn't serverless because you still have CPU, RAM, and a machine that has to run for a certain number of hours, even when there's an execution. Well, where the heck does uh, the stuff go if you don't store it somewhere? Like, I'm just going to throw my user data away? <laughs> so that's, that's, that's where there's other services that come in useful, like uh, DynamoDB, for example, which is essentially a NoSQL key value store that is completely serverless. So it's the type of thing where you get executed based on how much you write data to it and how much you read data from it. And if it's sitting idle and no one's doing anything with it, well, you don't, you don't build a cent except for the actual volume of data, which is fractions of a cent per tens of gigs. So, you know, that's that's where a lot of people building serverless apps tend to focus on storing things because it just makes it a lot easier. Uh, you could just connect to a, uh, define an entire DynamoDB table in your YAML configuration file and then just use the AWS API to put data into it or read data from it. It's just, it's as simple as it sounds. But the data is still stored somewhere, and it doesn't just yeah. like disappear after ten seconds. Like the data is no. still there. No, that, that was when we were talking about the relational databases. So, uh, if you're not right. connected to a relational database that needs to make a SQL connection to a remote server, then you don't have this ten second issue. DynamoDB isn't a, a traditional database. It's essentially you can just think of it as, as an API that you talk to. Um, you're not going to pass SQL to it. You're going to pass API requests to it to write and retrieve your data from. Well, I, w I would imagine that it is probably pretty similar to most databases. They just wrap it in an API layer so that they have a different billing model for it, and they probably have it just like with Lambda. It's not like the server's not there. The server's there. The server's always on. Yeah. They just change the APIs so that they have a different billing process for how you use data on that server or bandwidth on that server. Yeah, it, yeah. it looks like there's some homework to be done here because you know we're making assumptions about how Dynamo works without actually... Scene. Well, DynamoDB is is a completely custom uh, service built by AWS from the ground up. It's not actually related to a SQL database in any way. Um, there's actually a paper right. that they posted in 2008 uh, where they switched Amazon as the, the retail store to running primarily off of uh, DynamoDB, which they built in-house. And then they opened it up to customers to say, we built this thing that we like and we think our customers might like. Here it is, and this is how much it costs. And... 
Um, it's genuinely a, a it's, it's one of those things where it's not that there, there are servers in the back and your data could be spread across five, six, ten of them, depending on how much data you have and how much traffic you drive to it. Um, but ultimately, you don't care about those details because they make very specific SLA promises about how, how your, 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 your queries and your, your reasoning rights perform. For example, they, they guarantee single millisecond latencies on queries. Uh, we're talking sort of nine milliseconds and under in retrieving wow. data and similar in writes. That is pretty um, dang good. Yeah, it is, it is, it's pretty impressive. And the best part about it is there's no, there's no per hour billing model. So one of the things I was trying to get to earlier is that what a lot of people don't think about when you're building your web app is that for a lot of people, uh, the apps you're building, are, are your traffic tends to be regional. Um, where I am in now before I'm moving to serverless, it's a South African company that produces, a, that, that, that's a retail company. And most of the traffic happens daytime, South African time. But at night at 2 a.m., there's no traffic on the site. And yet the company has to pay for uh, three EC2 instances running the web app, uh, load balancers, uh, massive uh, databases that sit idle all night long, but you can't scale down and back up in the morning because that can have massive consequences if something goes wrong on your data. Uh, But the company's paying for all of this infrastructure that's doing nothing in the evenings. Whereas and now they're busy planning uh, on, on converting a lot of the stuff to sort of serverless. Uh, the, one of the big reasons is that serverless can handle traffic better. So you don't have to have these automatic scaling features and having somebody sitting there trying to push a button to make sure that the scaling happens as it's supposed to because you have an SLA that says we guarantee you this amount of capacity, uh, which is pretty compelling. Well, thank you very much. Um, sometimes I'm just antagonistic for the sake of playing devil's advocate. In this case, I actually am a real, more of a hardware hands-on guy. So these are actually real questions I've had. But I really appreciate the depth with which you've explained that. And I hope that that's uh, value, valuable to some of our other skeptic listeners. Even myself, I've got a couple of digital ocean servers that I'm running, for example, with my own little mail server on it. I've got a little invoicing server that I'm running uh, so I like to fiddle with these things myself as well. But it really comes down to if I'm building a solution for somebody and I need to get something out, I don't necessarily want to have to fiddle with Kubernetes clusters and, and containers and load balancing and scaling databases. I just want stuff that works. So that's where serverless comes in useful for me. Got it. Super cool. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash javascriptjabber. All right, well, I'm going to push us into picks because uh, <laughs> I've got a call coming up, and I think some, uh, some of the rest of us have some scheduling things. So it's getting late as well. Yeah. Frosty, do you have some picks for us? You know, I do. Uh, I'm going to do a pick on uh, a book, short book, easy read, but changing book. Uh, a long time ago, I read a book, short book called The Key to Living the Law of Attraction. And I was at a spot in life where it really made a difference to me. And I just read a book that um, had a similar impact on me. And I wanted to share it. It's called The Go-Giver. 
And it's called The Go-Giver, A Little great. Story About a Powerful Business Idea. Did, did, have you guys read it? I have. It's great. Okay. Book. Great book. I mean, it put words to things I've watched people do for years. It put words to ideas I've had and it hardened principles around just little habits that I've, I've seen people have and uh, really, really, really good book about how to, I don't increase your influence, which is really, I think, um, what I think matters the most. And so it's called the go giver. It's kind of like the go getter, but it's, you change your paradigm and it's, it's uh, the go giver. So I share that in the notes. It'll be out there. So there it is. The go giver. That's my pick. Nice. Uh, AJ, do you have some picks for us? I do. I do. Okay. So first of all, I have to correct. I said something really stupid a couple weeks ago and I was supposed to like contact and get the thing re-edited or whatever. And I didn't do it, but I should have. Okay. So I've been reading this book, how to fix and diagnose everything electronic. First of all, what I said, if you listen to the other show, obviously I'm the newbie. I was obviously wrong. The guy in the book was obviously right but it was just a conflict of misunderstanding. Anyway, I've had so many aha moments reading this book. Like I, I didn't pick it up necessarily to learn how to fix and diagnose things that are electronic, but rather I picked it up because I want to learn how electronics work. And for me, the the concept of like taking something that works, taking it apart, putting it back together again. I mean, this goes back into some of the philosophy I just shared a few minutes ago. You know, like that's that's like how I learn and how I feel confident about something. So I found this book to be really beneficial in comparison to some some other books I kind of thumbed through because of the way that the guy approaches it, taking something that already works, why does something that works break? And then he gives like, it, and it's not just that. I mean, it's, it's a great book. Really, really gives a lot of um, good insight into how electronics work. And, and anyway, so I want to pick that again because now I'm almost done with it. Whereas before I was like a third or quarter way through and it's just been fantastic. Wonderful aha moments. If that's kind of your learning style, highly recommend the book. I'll put a link to it. Even if I accidentally fudged the title, I think it's how to fix and diagnose everything. But anyway, other two picks, distant worlds. So distant worlds is a full orchestra that uh, I don't know if it's the same orchestra every time. They probably hire different orchestras in different regions, but it's uh, it's it's an orchestral presentation of music from Final Fantasy. So if you love the Final Fantasy music, I didn't realize this. I mean, I saw Distant Worlds. I thought it was just rehashes of the music from the game. No, it is like completely like full re uh, reimagined orchestral pieces from the game. So not just your little 8-bit sounds or your piano versions. Like it's this, this is full, full body, just amazing sound of uh, the Final Fantasy tracks, which are epic, which are again by Nobuo Uematsu, which which I've I've picked some of his stuff on before. And I can't pick that without picking Symphony of the Goddesses, which is the corresponding Zelda symphony that both of these symphonies uh, as they travel year after year new songs get added as the new games come out you know fairly different style of music but a lot a lot in common and i just man there's no there's just no music like that I, or I, I guess there is but oh man it's just mm, love it love it so both of those and they have it on cd of course if you want to get the you know higher fidelity unlike my kids Joe, do you have some picks for us? Oh, you know it. I'm going to pick today the concept of expanding your horizons. 
had a conversation a little bit ago on another podcast where we were talking about learning things that you don't do in your job for the express purpose of broadening your horizons, your horizons and your viewpoints, your paradigms to get better at what you actually do, even if you don't end up doing that thing that you learned. As an example, I did JavaScript for quite a while and I got exposed to Elm and I spent some time studying and learning Elm. And that really broadened my horizon and my viewpoint about state management, about JavaScript, about compilers, and a lot of things. And I've had that experience many times over my career. So I highly recommend that. And I think there's a really great way to do that if you've got a little bit of study time in you. Pick up the book, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks, and walk through it. I think there's a more Seven Languages in Seven Weeks, which actually includes Elm as one of the languages that is covered. But I highly recommend that. If you don't have time for that, go learn Elm if you do JavaScript, because it'll really broaden your horizons for sure as a JavaScript developer. And that's my pick. Nice. Amy, do you have some picks? I do. Um, This probably doesn't come as a big surprise, but I like this kind of stuff because it's a good reminder. Um, Something in the New York Times, um, just about uh, productivity is not about time management. It's about attention management. So I am a big proponent of this. Like One of the things that... I really believe strongly in doing is uh, keeping like an Evernote doc of everything that I have to do. Like, and I have a doc of like have to do a doc of like wish list to do. And that keeps it from kind of cluttering up all the things that gather my attention during the day so that I can focus on the important stuff. So I'll share a link to this and that's it for me. Oh, I probably should throw in another pick. I've put this on Twitter, but, um, I'm like obsessed with Quest bars, um, uh, protein bars that don't have much sugar in them, if any at all, because I really try to watch my sugar. And you can't order them yet, but by the time this comes out, you probably can. The manager at GNC gave me to try. They have a new flavor, which is uh, chocolate donut and actually has like sprinkles on it. So it was pretty amazing. And that's going to be my food pick. Nice. I'm going to throw in a couple of picks. First of all, I'm working on some starting some new shows. So uh, keep an eye out for those. I think I've mentioned that on the show before, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But yeah, watch devchat.tv, go get on the mailing list, and uh, you'll get announcements as we're pulling those together. Another thing that I uh, am going to pick is, and and this is sort of self-serving, but I'm finding that there are a lot of podcasts out there that run for a while and then for whatever reason quit running. Um, And as I talk to the podcasters that are running them, Typically, it boils down to one of two things. Either they have trouble finding sponsors and then can't afford to do the production for the shows, or they get tired of managing the production for the shows and wind up quitting. And I, I think this is sad, and I really want to uh, make those shows run. And so I have taken to adopting um, defunct or semi-defunct shows. So if you know a podcast out there that you're just like, man, this was a great podcast, about specifically about programming, um, I'm kind of staying in my lane still. Wait, wait, wait. Tang- what about what if it's Dungeons and Dragons? Does that qualify? Uh, I would adopt a Dungeons and Dragons show. <laughs> but yeah, and, and that I guess so peripherally related, right? So that that's kind of culturally related. Then let me know. Shoot me an email or tweet at me. My email's Chuck at devchat.tv, or you can uh, tweet at me C Max W, and let me know what the show is. If you can do introductions to the podcasters, that's, that makes it easier. But if you can't, then I will track them down and see if I can get them to let me help them. So either help them find sponsorship, 
help them with the production or both, which means that they become part of devchat.tv. So I'm just going to put that out there because, yeah, it's funny. I tweeted it and I got like four responses like super fast. So we'll put that out there for folks. Gareth, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, um, I have two of them and I'm a, I'm a bit of a gamer. So that's what they're going to be related around. My first one's going to be uh, a Final Fantasy fourteen. It's an MMO, if anybody's not familiar with the game. Um, and it's an absolutely... Uh, it, it, it's been an absolute ton of fun. I used to be a big uh, World of Warcraft gamer back in the day. But Final Fantasy XIV is, is one of these games that went through a bit of a rough patch when it first was released. Uh, there's actually a couple of interesting uh, documentaries about it as well. But essentially, it was an absolutely horrific game when it was first released. They went back to the drawing board, promised the community they would fix it. And something like a year and a half later, they ended up re-releasing the game and, and, and fit this whole re-release into the lore of the whole world being reborn. Very cool stuff. And, and, and if anybody does enjoy sort of a, a good old tab-targeted MMO style, I'd highly recommend Final Fantasy XIV. The second one that I'm going to recommend is a little bit different, but still related to gaming, because I am also a fan of the Linux desktop. And last year, near the end of last year, my two gaming and Linux desktop worlds collided in a wonderful way. Uh, if anybody's not heard of Steam Play and is uh, likes gaming and likes Linux, well, this is something to take a look at. It's a really cool thing that Valve have done with Steam, the gaming platform, where essentially you can tell Steam to launch a Windows-only game on your Linux desktop. And 70% of the time, when you click that play button, it just automatically works with no additional configuration needed, no tweaking or changing. And that's a lot of fun. So as a lot of these uh, games I've collected over the years that run only on Windows and I kind of look at, look at them regretfully, um, and now I can actually click play like Final Fantasy XIV. It's a Windows-only game, but it runs on Linux because of Steam Play. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting uh, for me in that way. Nice. And if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, the easiest way to find me is just on Twitter. Um, my handle's GarethMCC. Yeah, and if you don't mind following a relatively quiet Twitter account, then mine's the one for you. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for coming, Gareth. No problem. It's fun. All right. Well, we will wrap this one up and we will be back next week. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.